now listening to Grace City Portland. Okay, we're going to go to the book of Mark, chapter 1. That's New Testament. There's four gospels in the New Testament. You could kind of think of the gospel as a sort of biography, um, kind of a biography about Jesus, who he is, what he said, taught, did, um, how he affected the world, and ultimately his death and resurrection, the commission uh, to us as church today and to the world. Uh, These are various accounts of that. Each one of the gospel authors was led by the Spirit of God to to pin details regarding who God is and what he did for us in the person of Jesus, the God-man. And so depending upon the gospel that we look at, you're going to get various angles. You're going to get certain things emphasized and highlighted. Um, We're going to study through the entire book of Mark over the next uh, six, six and a half months. And I, I spent quite a bit of time praying about it, um, as along with some of our leaders here. And we decided that Mark was definitely the gospel for us uh, because it's the shortest one. So there you go. <laughs> so Mark chapter one, here we go. You guys excited to go through the entire book of Mark? Yes, that's what I was hoping for. I'm excited. Okay, here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Any movie buffs in the room? I was thinking, if you, if you, I was thinking about it all week, and I'm sure there's a, there's a technical term for this, but I don't know what it is, so maybe you can help me. What do you call it when a movie starts out and you like watch the opening sequence is actually the end of like the chronological order of events, and you watch that? What's that called? The, the prologue? Is that that's that sounds right? <laughs> we'll go with that. But what we're going to do now, what we've just read, rather, is like that. We're, we're watching the end. In fact, the beginning of Mark is the end of a long, long story um, that, that God has been telling throughout the scriptures. But I want us to back way up now, about 2,000 years, really, 
and get the context of Mark, particularly this opening scene. Are you down with that? Anyone really into history? Hmm, okay, here we go. (laughs) I also hated history growing up. Um, But I really think this is going to be helpful and important for us as we're just setting up the Gospel of Mark. So let's go back a couple thousand years. Um, Let me say this as well. If if you've been tracking through the the teaching series that we actually just finished last week, um, you'll already have a pretty good idea of the context because we worked through a several hundred years of history, that is Israel being delivered out of slavery. They had been held in Egypt for about 400 years. God promised that he would deliver them out of slavery and and take them to a land that he had originally promised to a man named Abraham to deliver them and bless them and ultimately through them Bless the entire world. Restore creation to its original state through this family that was meant to be the offspring of Abraham. Now, as you might know, eventually they were delivered out of Egypt and they began this journey through the wilderness, as it were, and eventually they came to Mount Sinai and the law happened and the golden calf happened and all sorts of stuff happened. And we talked about all that over a period of a few months. And then eventually they get to another wilderness and they're about to enter into the land that God had promised them, only they messed it all up. And they they ended up forfeiting uh, that gift, that blessing, and they wasted an entire generation, 40 years, wandering around in this desert until one generation died and God used the next generation and led them into the promised land. Um, They were led by Joshua. Now, here we go, history. 1400 BC, give or take. God's people led by Joshua finally enter into the promised land. And they do all right. I mean, it's by no means perfect. They're bumbling and fumbling along. They, They start out pretty well. The first great victory they see is Jericho Falls. You might remember the the story of the walls of Jericho and God commanded his people to simply march around this fortified city. And what happens? The people do nothing other than just simply march and shout and the walls fall down. It's like an obvious victory won by God. So they start out pretty well. They're trusting God. God is fighting for them. They don't even have to pick up a sword. God is just, he's doing it. He's leading them. He's helping them. He's providing for them. But, just like they had always done, rather quickly, they began to relapse. And they forget that it's actually God who's meant to fight for them. Uh, eventually, they start to, to worship other gods. They begin to, to, to mimic the people around them. They want to be like the, the people that they're meant to displace. The very people that, that God is trying to use them to, to vanquish so that evil can be done away with and God's kingdom, his good, righteous kingdom can be established in this place. But, but they blow it. They, they end up worshiping idols again. About 500 years go by and eventually the kingdom of Israel, which is made up of 12 tribes, splits. Um, King David, who did fairly well, kind of blew it, totally blew it towards the end of his life. 
he ends up having a son named Solomon. Solomon's super wise, does a lot for the state of Israel, but eventually he ends up worshiping more idols than you could possibly imagine. It's like a thousand wives or something. It gets nuts. Totally blows. He has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam's a complete idiot and decides that the people need to be oppressed so they can get more work done. And so everyone rebels, and another guy named Jeroboam decides, hey, forget this guy. Why don't you guys follow me? We're, I'm going I'm to start a new capital. We're going to call it Bethel. And, you know, you guys have gone to Jerusalem long enough to worship. I've got a couple of golden calves. You happen to remember that story? In Bethel, you can just come and worship them with, there with me. So the kingdom splits in two. Ten tribes go with Jeroboam. The other two, Judah and Benjamin, stay put, and they, they remain faithful uh, to the lineage of David, and they decide, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem. This is only the beginning of really bad things to come. About 200 years after that, uh, Assyria shows up and sacks the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that went to go worship the golden calves with Jeroboam. They're uh, taken away into exile. About 135 years after that, the Babylonians rock up. They're, they're bad. They're really, really bad. They're serious, and they destroy Jerusalem. They take down Judah. The last of God's people who are actually dwelling in the land he promised them have now been defeated and taken away into exile in Babylon. So promised land is no more. It's like, it's like done. They've ended up rebelling so many times. They end up relapsing so many times that eventually God says, right, let's do this the hard way, I guess. And he uses this enemy nation, Babylon, to judge his own people and take them into exile. They lose the land. They forfeit the promise. All of, it's gone now, I finally erased the board. The wilderness, the mountain, the giants, the crossing over that Joshua leading God's people into the land that he had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've lost it all. Because they keep rebelling. They, just, they seem like unable to trust and obey God. So Babylon happens. They conquer Judah. They sack Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, which is kind of a big deal. And they take the rest of God's people into exile. This is around 590 BC. 70 years later, they're in Babylon for 70 years. Under the rule of King Cyrus who is the king of the Persian Empire. Persia comes and conquers Babylon, and Cyrus says, I I want you to go ahead and go back and reestablish yourselves in Jerusalem. He allows a, a contingency of Jewish people to move back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. This is an explicit fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 25. They'll be in exile for 70 years, and then they will return. So there's some history. God's people, they finally arrive at their destination, but they can't seem to live in peace for more than like an entire generation. The best summary, I think, in all of the Old Testament scriptures of this 
um, piece of history is found in Nehemiah chapter 9. I think I've actually got this one up on the screen. Thank you so much. I actually really need that. Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me read this. So after God rescued them, delivered them in the promised land, it says, so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness, God's great goodness. Nevertheless, this is Nehemiah 9, 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Next slide, please. Verse 32. Now therefore... Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria, they are the ones that sacked northern Israel, until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and have acted um, and have, for you have dealt faithfully and have acted, that's a typo. God did not act wickedly. <laughs> yeah, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we, thank you, and we have acted wickedly. <laughs> like, I'm missing something. Verse 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And finally, last slide. And its rich yield goes to the kings who you set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. They've come back to Jerusalem. They're in the promised land. They're in the process of rebuilding the temple. And yet they're slaves in the very land that God delivered them to from slavery in the first place. It has not gone well for God's people. What do you think about that? It's rather sad. Less than 100 years go by. The prophet Malachi tells Israel that they're beginning to weary the Lord by constantly asking, where, <clears throat> excuse me, where is the God of justice? God's response, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
This is Mark's opening line in introducing Jesus. In that same prophetic passage, Malachi ends by saying this. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Then everything goes silent. 400 years, God says nothing. He was the last prophetic voice among God's people. The day will come when God will act. They were crying out for justice. God in his great mercy was withholding justice from his people because they had done nothing but acted wickedly almost from day one. He said, but the day will come. The day will come when I will act justly and I will deal with the wicked in the land. But those who fear me And trust me, they, they will rise up. They will run like calves out of stalls, strong. hundred years after that, we're almost done. This is called the intertestamental period. God is not saying anything, but history is still happening. A guy named Alexander the Great appears on the scene. Greece rises to power. He conquers the known world and he takes over Jerusalem. About 100 years after that, Egypt takes Jerusalem back. Then Syria has a turn. They're in power for about 30 years. In 164 BC, the great Maccabean revolt happens. The Jewish people themselves reclaim Jerusalem. They, They take the temple back. It's a big deal. It lasts for 100 years. And then you know who shows up? Rome. And the world had never, ever seen a power like that. Rome. Incomparable military power. They take over and own Jerusalem like it had never been owned before. About 65 years go by. 60, 65 years go by. And then in a little town called Bethlehem, a man is born of a virgin, and they named him Jesus, God with us, the God who saves us. Just a few months before Jesus was born, this is around 6, 4, 5 BC, a guy named John is born. John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. I grew up in a Baptist church. I used to always think like, yes, we get John. (laughs) He was a Baptist, not a Methodist, not a Lutheran, a Baptist. (laughs) John the Baptizer. He appears on the scene crying out in the wilderness, fulfilling 
Isaiah's prophecy, this is Isaiah chapter 40, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Which comes from the same prophetic passage that goes on to say, behold, Israel, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Jesus is introduced as the fulfillment of all of that. He is the mighty king who is meant to finally rescue God's people, specifically from this superpower known as Rome. He's the king. He's the savior. He's the Christ that God's people have been waiting for for nearly 2,000 years, if you really go back. Finally, Jesus appears on the scene. He's the warrior king who comes to bring justice to the oppressed, to vanquish evil, to rescue captives, and to conquer the enemy of all God's people. He is the one who John says is mightier than I. He is the one. He is the king who's come to conquer evil and rescue his people from the oppressors. He is the one of whom John said, I came merely baptizing with water, but he, that is the Christ, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus is the one who they'd they'd been waiting for, and yet he was nothing like who they expected. Nothing. John knew. He's arguably the only one that saw it coming, but no one else No one else, really, even the disciples, didn't actually have a clue. Mark is introducing to us the Christ who leads God's people beyond the waters of baptism, beyond the sea and the wilderness, beyond repentance and mere reformation of morality, and into a life empowered by the Spirit that we might live, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 7, 6, that we might live in the new way of the Spirit. Yeah, amen. Amen. That we might live in the new way of the Spirit. John came baptizing with the baptism of repentance from sins. But he said, one who is mightier than I who was coming, one whose sandals I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Ironically, it was Jesus who said of John that of all of the men born of women, there was never one greater than John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever live. And yet John himself said, one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals because I have come to baptize for the forgiveness of sins, a baptism of a water baptism of repentance, which, by the way, is something that the Jews have been doing for a long, long time. Started all the way back in Leviticus 16, this sort of ceremonial cleansing, this this religious or or spiritual rite of, 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 of washing to make one pure. They called it the mikvah, 
And it was something that eventually, like everything in the Old Testament, the Jewish people eventually built traditions around. They sort of added to it, and they tweaked it, and they used it for all sorts of different acts of worship and, 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 and in the temple cultus. But one was coming, John said, who is mightier than I, because he will baptize you with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. First thing that Jesus does, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks, he's, he confronts a demon. He calls his disciples to himself and he says, let's go, let's do this. What does he do? He casts a demon out of a man. And then he starts to heal people, like a lot of people. He declares war, not on Rome, not on people, not even on governmental systems. He begins to confront an invisible world he inaugurates his kingdom and he starts a war against the opposing kingdom of darkness. He goes toe-to-toe with the devil. This is who Jesus is. This is the one who is mightier than I. This is the great warrior king who's come to set God's people free. But instead of declaring military war on Rome or whoever it may have been at that time, it's funny how you, you would have thought that after Israel entered into the promised land, they would have just lived happily ever after. Like nothing ever difficult ever happened to the Jewish people after that. All they ever knew were resurrecting giants. The enemy rising back up to strike them down, to tempt them, to, to lure them back into the rebellious and idolatrous tendencies to stop trusting God to trust themselves, essentially. And so the mightier one appears, and he declares war on an invisible kingdom. John baptized with water, a symbolic act of contrition by which an individual confesses that they have sinned and they desire to be made clean. But Jesus, the one who John says is mightier than I, he comes to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. To be met by this king is to be overcome by the one who knows our innermost being, our prideful thoughts, who sees our hearts, who conquers evil and overthrows the human heart. This is what Jesus was doing. This is what Jesus was up to. He realized that the real enemy of humanity was something else. It wasn't actually Rome. It was something going on the inside of the human heart. Baptism in water, which we did Friday night. A few of you got baptized Friday night. It's a beautiful thing. It's awesome. I love it. It's like, it's like showing up to the hospital and passing out cigars. But they don't really do that anymore, do they? It's like celebrating like the newborn. Like, yes, it's, it's so special. Like, pass the, you know, you don't, am I old? Am I old? I'm old. Not that I ever actually did that, but like, wasn't that a thing like 50 years ago? 
Come on, help me out, Jeff. Where was I? <laughs> Baptism in water marks our decision to repent, to confess and forsake our sin and begin living out God's vision for our lives. It's a declaration of God's lordship. It's to say, you know, I'm dying to myself. I no longer set the agenda. I no longer define who I am, what I'm about. And so you go down into the water, it's an act of dying with Jesus, dying to self, dying to sin, and you come back up to say, now I'm living for Jesus. He's now Lord, he's king. And in fact, it's, it's no longer I'm who living, but it's Jesus, the one mightier than I, who's living within me and through me. It's by his grace that I'm now alive, that I'm breathing and living and loving and, and becoming the person that he saved me for and created me for in the first place. That's baptism. But when you come up out of the water, something else happens. It doesn't, it's not just a moral reformation. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not just a commitment to be nicer or to stop cussing so much or maybe smoke a little bit less or whatever it is you think of when you think of religious morality. God does something transcendent. He fills the human heart with the very spirit of God himself. Now at this point, if, if you're at all into theology or doctrine, this is where debates break out about like, oh, so what, what are we talking about? Like neo-Pentecostalism? Are we gonna get charismatic now? Like this is Mark chapter one, okay? <laughs> this isn't like weird opinions on Paul. This is Jesus the Christ introducing the mighty king who's coming to lead us beyond mere repentance and into new life in the spirit of God. He's come not to just reform our morality, but to actually fill us with God himself. I said, I'd never get over that. How can God himself come to live inside a, human, a finite human soul? I mean, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. How does that happen? You remember later on, you might remember this, Jesus, he, uh, he crosses over uh, the, the sea and he comes to this region and there's a demon-possessed man and he's the dude, uh, he's the naked dude who's like living in the tombs People kept trying to lock him up, but he just kept breaking chains. And so he lived out in like the, the tombs. And he comes running up to Jesus, and Jesus says, what's your name? And he says, Legion, for we are many. Thousands of demons are living in this one poor naked dude. And Jesus says the word, and he commands every one of them to come out. That says something about the spiritual nature of the human soul. We have been designed to house, hold, be indwelled by God himself. Mm. We must meet the one who is mightier than I if we are to live our lives beyond mere reformation of morality and experience actual newness 
of life. That's where Mark starts. That's where the journey begins. That's how we cross over into the promised land and actually begin to slay giants. And when that giant starts to like kind of rear its head again, in Jesus, we take the heel of our boot and we stick it on the back of its head and we push hard. Because we're called to be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. And by the power of his spirit, we are enabled to live like our king, to become like the Christ, to become Christians, little Christ, not deities. Let's be super, super clear about that. Different church, different religion. We follow our king, are filled by the spirit of God and are empowered to become like him, to overcome giants, to stay in the land that God promised us and to live the life that he saved us for. And that is definitely worth clapping about while I drink my water. Some of you are like, dude, this is a charismatic church. I guess, I don't know. Let me, let me close, let me get a little practical for us, okay? And I, I hope this challenges you, it challenges me. How do you know if you're living a spirit-empowered life? How do you know, let's say if in fact You've been baptized, so I'm a follower of Jesus. I made the decision, still got like a million questions that I'm, I'm trying to get answered, but I'm following Jesus. He is my Lord. If that, if that is true, then you should have received the Spirit of God. It's not like this separate thing. I mean, I don't really waste a lot of time trying to figure out like the sequence of events when it comes to like salvation and, and becoming like Jesus. But to be a Christian is to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's how we're adopted into the family of God. He pours the spirit of adoption into us, and that's it. We're in the family. How do you know? What does that look like? How, how, what is the litmus test for living in the new way of the Spirit? Four things. Number one, you fear God and tremble at the thought of disobeying his word. Isaiah 66, 2 says, This is the one whom I will look to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. To be filled with the Spirit of God means that holiness is no longer a mere religious obligation. We desire holiness because God is holy and we are his children. And they're becoming like who he is. It's who we are. To fear God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of being transformed by the spirit of God. When I first became a Christian, I've shared this story before. Um, I was a porn addict. I know some of you don't like it when I talk about that. But statistically, more than half of us in the room struggle with this. So I'm going to talk about it. I was a porn addict. And I, I hated it, as is the nature of any addiction. And, and I kept doing it, and I, I wanted to be free from it. And I surrendered to Jesus, and he broke chains. It's like that weird demoniac. Chains couldn't hold him, so he lived naked out in the tombs. But there's other kinds of chains, like chains that entwine the human soul. 
And so I gave my life to Jesus, and he broke chains. He set me free. Less than a couple days went by, and I remember feeling convicted when I was, like, lusting. Like, you know, wanting to look at something or, or watch something. And I remember this weird feeling. It reminded me of this sort of, like, guilty feeling, for lack of a better word, that I used to feel when I was just a little kid and I used to sneak and like take peeks at the Victoria's Secret, you know, whatever. And, and I remember as a little child, very soft, sensitive heart would think like, no, that's something like, not, this is not a critique against Victoria's Secret. So just. <laughs> but my heart had become soft again. My heart had become sensitive to sin. I was, I was humbled. I had a healthy fear of disappointing my God. The kind of sin that I used to I had become very comfortable with. I'd actually gotten to a point in my life where I was not only comfortable with sinning, but it was like a great joy to sin. Like I loved my sin. It was great. I hated it, but I loved it. And then Jesus set me free, and all of a sudden, I began to fear God. I began to desire to be holy. And when I read his word, I felt myself trembling, as it were. And I was convicted of my sin, and it felt healthy. It felt whole. It felt like my conscience had been made new again. It was like I could breathe again. I had forgotten what it felt like. That's probably the surest or at least one of the primary indications that you have a heart that is being filled with the Spirit of God. Number two, you desire to serve others. You desire to give love. You desire to reciprocate love. When you've been loved the way that Jesus loves, when you've been forgiven much, you desire to love much. It's, it's the most logical outworking of a heart that's been filled with the Spirit of God. Paul writes in Romans that we have, he pours his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, whom he's given to us. Practically, that means um, you start to grow up. You start to grow up. And you begin to realize like, oh, the world doesn't revolve around me. It's what every parent hopes for for their child. That eventually my kids will, will realize, no, the world does not revolve around you. The church does not revolve around you. There should be this like practical desperation to just serve wherever you go. Of course, the beauty of that is when a whole community is growing in that way, we are like competing to serve each other. And so it actually works out. At least in theory. <laughs> Everyone's getting loved. Number three, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, when you're living a Spirit-empowered life, you have the courage to live boldly. The Scriptures say that we've not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, that we have been given the very boldness of Christ, that we're not to be ashamed of the gospel we can live out loud. 
we can live unashamed, unabashed, bold lives, on fire with the Spirit of God. You ever, ever feel slightly embarrassed to, to talk about what you did on Sunday? Some of you are like, Psh, no. <laughs> really, never? You never feel that slight awkwardness? Like, ah, it's going to make it weird. You know, I don't want to be too bold. I don't want to be offensive. Man, look at, I've always thought of it like this. When you've fallen in love, you don't really care who knows about it. You're like, look, I know it's annoying. I know I'm rambling on. I know it's all I ever talk about. But what, what can I say? What can I say? I've met the one. I've met the one. Hopefully that's not a license to be annoying. I, I just have to say that as well. The world doesn't need more annoying people. The world needs passionate bold, unashamed people who've actually tasted the goodness of God and aren't afraid to tell people about it. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but I'll give you my number four. You're living a spirit-empowered life when you're loving your neighbors and your enemies. You know that you've been affected by the Spirit of God, that you've been filled with the Spirit, that you've encountered Jesus, the one who baptizes people in the Spirit of God, when you find yourself loving not only neighbor, but neighbor and enemy alike, when you begin to love people who are very, very hard to love, perhaps like some of us here in this room, I'd say some of the hardest people on the planet to love are hypocritical Christians. The very people who should be the most patient, loving, kind, generous, gentle, respectful, gracious people on the planet are some of the hardest people you ever have to love in your life. And that's just like family, isn't it? I know, it's terrible, right? Like, I, I, wouldn't, I, I couldn't think of a single person in here I'd look at and be like, yeah, you're... You're my enemy. No, of course not. But loving, like hard to love people, because that's how Jesus loves us. And I, this, I'll end on this, but this is not an emotion that can be merely mustered. You can't just merely will it and be like, oh, well, Jesus told me to do it, therefore I will. I mean, you will obey, you must obey. We have to make that decision. But to love with a genuine love that's from the heart, that's a miracle. That is a work of God. That is something the Spirit of God does on the inside of us out. God teaches us to love our enemies because that's how he has loved us. When we were baptized, it was an acknowledgement that I deserve to die because of my sin, because of my rebellion. I'm just like those ancient people that died in the wilderness. I'm just as stubborn, arrogant, and just thick-headed as anyone else who's ever had a go. And the wages of my sin are death, but Jesus died for me. While I was still his enemy, God showed grace. That, that does something. That changes everything. 
That's the kind of grace that empowers us to love even our enemies. Now, sometimes that love is very bold. Sometimes that, that love means consequences. That doesn't mean that you can't, can't equate the love of God with just being nice and PC to everyone. Sometimes that love is very intense. It can mean saying things to people about, if you don't put your trust in Jesus, you will spend eternity in hell separated from him. It's like, whoa, you just said that out loud. Sometimes you need to love people in that way. And you better hope it's the spirit of God leading you to say that. Put your bullhorn away. Can we stand together, please?